0: Saudi Arabia pays cash. Director Merlo, isn't it fair to say that the president's written answers were not only inadequate and incomplete, because he didn't answer many of your questions, but where he did, his answers showed that he wasn't always being truthful. Uh, I would say, uh, generally. Saudi Arabia, and I get along great with all of them. They buy apartments from me, they spend 40 million, 50 million, am I supposed to dislike them? I like them very much.
1: The articles of impeachment against Donald Trump charge him with abuse of power and obstruction. And if anything is true in life, Donald Trump has abused his power and obstructed everything that's threatened his grip on that power. Indeed, abuse of power and obstruction are frameworks that Congress could use to impeach Donald Trump for most of the impeachable offenses he's committed, at least in theory. In practice, the House of Representatives has chosen to impeach Donald Trump for only the most immediate abuses of power and acts of obstruction before them.
0: President Trump solicited a foreign nation, Ukraine, to publicly announce investigations into his opponent and a baseless conspiracy theory promoted by Russia to help his reelection campaign. President Trump abused the power of his office by conditioning two official acts to get Ukraine to help his reelection, the release of hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid that nation desperately needed, and a White House meeting with an ally trying to fend off Russian aggression. In so doing, he undermined our national security and jeopardized the integrity of our next election. The evidence is every bit as strong that President Trump has obstructed Congress fully, without precedent. And without basis in law. If allowed to stand, it would decimate Congress's ability to conduct oversight of this president or any other in the future, leaving this president and those who follow to be free to be as corrupt, malfeasant, or incompetent as they would like with no prospect of discovery or accountability. What does this leave out? Unless
1: you think Trump betrayed his oath of office for the first time earlier this year, it leaves out the vast majority of his high crimes and misdemeanors. Remember, Trump ran for president promising to commit war crimes and order the Justice Department to investigate his political enemies, and he's kept his promise. He continues to use his private businesses to solicit bribes and otherwise profit from the presidency. When his illegal conduct has caught the eye of prosecutors, he's obstructed their criminal investigations. Consider this. Hours after House Democrats introduced their articles of impeachment, the government revealed that someone had offered one of Trump's top campaign aides, Rick Gates, cold, hard cash not to cooperate with special counsel Robert Mueller. One minute we learn Trump will not be charged with bribery or obstruction of justice. The next we learn someone in his orbit bribed a witness to obstruct justice. And yet... Rick Gates has not been called to testify. Meanwhile, as House Democrats gear up to impeach the third president in U.S. history, they also cut a deal with him. A deal to modernize NAFTA, the same free trade agreement he ran against to appeal to working-class voters in the Midwest. In the criminal justice system, prosecutors normally charge defendants with crimes only when they're near certain that juries will agree with them. And as it happens, the Ukraine shakedown and cover-up may be the most cut-and-dry crime Trump has ever been caught committing. He had the motive, means, and opportunity, and Democrats have the evidence. But impeachment isn't criminal justice. And as long as Republicans remain lashed to Trump, it isn't really a system of justice at all. It's a bully pulpit for exposing a corrupt president and those who seek to keep him in power despite all of his crimes. So why are Democrats doing this? And what should those of us who fear the consequences of accommodating an authoritarian president do in response? This week I'll discuss those questions with Michelle Goldberg, a New York Times columnist and co-host of the podcast The Argument, and we'll look ahead to what's next in the incredible shrinking impeachment of Donald Trump. I'm Brian Boitler, and this is Rubicon. Hiring is challenging. But there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast and smart, and growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. Cafe Altura COO Dylan Miskowitz experienced how challenging hiring can be after unsuccessfully searching for a director of coffee for his organic coffee company. But then he switched to ZipRecruiter and saw an immediate difference. And you can too by signing up for free at ZipRecruiter.com Rubicon. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. And its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job, so you get qualified candidates faster. In fact, after posting his job to ZipRecruiter, Dylan said he was amazed by how quickly great candidates were applying, and he found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes? Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com Rubicon. That's ZipRecruiter.com R-U-B-I-C-O-N. Michelle Goldberg, welcome to Rubicon.
2: Hey, thank you for having me.
1: So we're recording this perhaps a few hours before Democrats on the Judiciary Committee finalize the articles of impeachment against Donald Trump and send them to the full House. And so on the one hand, that's obviously a very momentous thing. Um, but as I kind of alluded to in the introduction, these aren't exactly the circumstances a lot of impeachment supporters had in mind when the inquiry began. So I guess I wanted to start by just asking you where, where your head is at as we approach the end of the House side of the impeachment process. Are are these two articles of impeachment enough?
2: I would say I'm in as dark a place as I've been any time in the last three years. Um, You know, I'm glad that the House is finally impeaching. I've been calling for impeachment for a long time. I think that two articles of impeachment that can pass the full House are better than, you know, a, a broader impeachment that would be at risk of failing if some moderate members get cold feet. But it just seems like a big, big mistake to, at least to me, to have rushed this through and then turn it over to Mitch McConnell, who can both set the rules and try to shut it down as quickly as possible. Um, You know, all the days when, you know, Colonel Vindman and... Fiona Hill and the various other diplomats and national security officials who are testifying about precisely what Trump did in Ukraine. Those were good days for the Democratic Party. I think any day day that you have a hearing uh, with factual evidence and fact witnesses testifying to the depth of this administration's corruption on all of the major TV networks – that's a good day for the country. And sort of why the Democratic Party wanted to limit that is something that, you know, even after talking to kind of savvy people who understand the politics of this and are worried about these frontline districts, I still don't quite understand it.
1: Yeah, I I feel very much the same way. You know, we I talked in my last episode with Matt Miller about this idea that, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump can't both be right about what's in Donald Trump's best interest but they both agree that the impeachment inquiry should be drawn to a close and i just it, it, there, there there was nothing that happened from the beginning of the inquiry to the end of those hearings that should have spooked anybody in the democratic party that this was going to hurt their individual political standing and then just as as a a matter of what what somebody like donald trump deserves is is like that kind of colonoscopy you know just Put everyone who can attest to uh, how how low of a person he is behind the scenes on on a witness stand and just make him talk. And I I I still have a hard time understanding why why there's any urgency at all among any of the members of the Democratic Caucus uh, about letting a, a process like that play out for another several weeks. Um, you tweeted something just a couple of days ago that resonated with me on a number of levels, and I and I understand you have a piece coming about it, uh, coming out about it in a couple of days. You wrote, "I've read about climate grief, the despair felt by climate scientists watching helplessly as something precious and irre- irreplaceable is destroyed. Lately, I'm experiencing democracy grief. Um, I'm wondering to what extent you were lamenting the rise of anti democracy forces here and around the world, and to what extent." Uh, that was a comment about the way pro-democracy institutions, leaders, et cetera, have responded to that.
2: Well, I mean, I think that they're interrelated. You know, part of what's sometimes I feel like we're living in a time where you have the rise of the Axis powers and and no allies, right? You don't really have any strong defenders of democracy anywhere, as you know, as much as I might admire Angela Merkel and Justin Trudeau. And I I was also – I was thinking about the fact that you see over and over again Democrats, um, including me at the beginning, being sort of baffled that Republicans have been so quick to align themselves with Russia, to repeat Russian propaganda about Ukraine, to accept Russian intervention in the election – And it occurred to me that, you know, for most of, you know, certainly for most of our lifetime, before our lifetime, the United States and Russia were engaged in an ideological conflict. Right. First, it was liberal Mm -hmm. democracy versus communism. Then it was liberal democracy versus authoritarian kleptocracy. And in both cases, each side was very interested in kind of showing that its model worked and the other one didn't. Right. That's one of the reasons that all of them, so many of the democratic accomplishments of you know the 20th century were possible because it was still possible to shame the United States for the distance between its democratic aspirations or democratic ideals and the, what the society itself looked like. And often it was because, well, you know, we're in this contest. We have to show that we are better than that so that people aren't attracted to this other sort of model. It makes sense that Republicans would not feel any conflict with Russia anymore because there there really isn't any ideological distance, right? They're both on the side of authoritarian kleptocracy, of using, you know, kind of reactionary populist social politics, you know, about kind of women and gay rights and, you know, kind of reinstating patriarchy, right? They are basically on the same side. Against the liberal Democrats. And so there's no reason to expect any sort of, um, I don't know, there's no reason to expect any more of them to show any sort of national solidarity with the rest of us. And I think we saw that during these hearings, you know, during the Judiciary Committee hearings on impeachment, we saw it with Bill Barr's recent interview there is no, it's no longer possible to have any sort of communication with people who are not interested in convincing you. They're not interested in making an argument. They're only interested in obfuscating and in um, kind of demoralizing their opponents and in kind of undermining any shared conception of, of reality. And it just strikes me that Democrats, I know it's I'm torn a little bit because I feel like liberals who are frustrated and scared, and it's always tempting to kind of take it out on Democrats and say that they're they're not doing enough when it's not always clear what exactly they should be doing. But I do think that we don't have that that our side continually underreacts to what we're facing.
1: See, I that that's it, what you just said is exactly. Where my mind went when I when I saw what you wrote, um, it, 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 to me it was a it was a tweet about a lot of things or a point about a lot of things, but it was also a point about impeachment. You know, you have this president who has tried to sort of forge this international alliance of ethnic, corrupt nationalist governments, and the Republican Party has just basically assented to it. Um, and then uh, and then separately, you have. Uh, the, the matter that's that's um, under investigation in the impeachment inquiry, which is, uh, you know, this abuse of power to extort Ukraine to help Donald Trump in the election. But, you know, Nancy Pelosi frequently tries to link these two things. Right. She's this all goes back to, to Russia with you. Um, and and, you know, she's she's obviously right, as illustrated by the fact that, you know, yesterday while Trump is, you know, uh, Democrats are drawing articles of impeachment pertaining to Trump denying the Ukrainian president uh, an Oval Office visit. He's he's bringing the Russian foreign minister into the Oval Office, which is weird on so many levels um, because, y- y- you know, the president doesn't normally fit a, a, a top diplomat. You know, they meet with foreign leaders at the mm-hmm. Oval Office. And last time he brought – uh, Sergey Lavrov, the foreign minister, into the Oval Office. He, uh, he absolved him of of meddling in the 2016 election. There's just there's all this rich uh, corroborating. It's almost like Trump is like dangling it in, in front of our faces. That,
2: well, I would say it feels like he's rubbing our faces in it.
1: Right. Exactly. Like and 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 the in in my mind, the the obvious response to that is like, oh, okay, we're we're going to keep going then. You know, if 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 what you're saying is that you're completely unchastened, that you're rubbing it in our faces, that a, not only are you going to get away with this, but b, you missed the bigger story, and the, the bigger story continues in the White House today. Then why, you know, why not uh, make that the centerpiece of a new round of investigation? Um, and not only because it's what he deserves, but it's because what fighting to Win this fight between the the international consortium of of you know corrupt uh, ethnic nationalists and liberal de- democracy needs. it's it's like it, 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 the the two things are inextricably linked. And I felt the same sort of democracy grief that you alluded to when all of that played out on on Tuesday.
2: And can I just say something quickly? You know, I was in Ukraine a couple of months ago, and one of the kind of heartbreaking things about what's going on in Kiev right now is that you I can't think of a country that is kind of more idealistic about Western-style liberal democracy than Kiev, right? Because, you know, unlike, say, some of the countries of the Eastern Bloc, they've thrown thrown off Russian domination relatively recently, right? So they're still in this stage where they're really excited about Europe. They're really excited about, you know, they have this parliament full of really young people. They're excited about the fact that they eliminated, um, you know, nationalities on people's um, passports, you know, that they have this kind of American conception almost of Ukrainianism. And it's almost like they're You know, they're they're 10 years too late because there's just the the forces that used to be there to bolster that kind of nascent democratic idealism, you know, have just have just collapsed. And again, I still am finding this really hard to process because the the analogy to climate grief is, you know, it's more the, the analogy isn't just the grief. It's, you know, liberal democracy has been the climate that we've lived in for almost our entire lives, right? It sort of was the air we breathed and it had never really occurred to me that I could see it you know deteriorate to the point of disappearing in my lifetime or that you know my children wouldn't be able to grow up in the kind of country that I had always taken for granted. I mean, it's just the scale of the loss to me is so disproportionate to the scale of the political response. And I think that's where so much of the frustration comes in.
1: Yeah, I, I strongly agree with with the sentiment that you're expressing right now. Um, and there's all these corrupt things happening that ought to be, I think, um, part of the impeachment inquiry. But the sort of international realignment, like if, if, if the United States is going to become part of an Axis of authoritarian countries, then that could happen in a um, in a process that is in and of itself sort of above board in a way where it's like really something that we should fight out in an election if we can mm-hmm. have a free and fair election. But it's something that ought to be fought uh, just as hard, even if you can't really do it in an impeachment. Um, which is why I I wanted to talk to you about where the um, Uh, The United States, Mexico, Canada agreement that the Democrats announced they were going to pass fits into your thinking about everything that we're talking about.
2: Well, you know, it's interesting because I think like you, I was initially kind of gobsmacked, like what on earth are Democrats doing giving Trump a victory on the same day? that they are announcing articles of impeachment, right? I mean, it's just this desire to appear bipartisan for which, as far as I can see, I don't see where they are getting any sort of credit for that. Um, But it's, you know, again, I don't doubt that there are districts whose politics Nancy Pelosi understands far, far better than I do. And so, you know, I think she no- certainly understands better than I do how to maintain a Democratic majority in the House. But I have had conversations with, um, with Democratic aides that have made me think that they are just not seeing the broader national politics. You know, one Democratic aide was saying to me, you know, what What they've later, you know, it's later been reported that Nancy Pelosi said, well, look, we were able to eat their lunch and we were able to extract all these concessions. And there was a piece recently in The Washington Post that had a lot of Republican senators kind of grumbling about what they were being forced to suck up because this is probably not a deal they would have accepted um, from anybody except for Donald Trump. So in that sense, I understand why this is a deal that Pelosi would take. But then The politics of it is to say Trump got rolled because he's weak. Right. It's not to say, look at all of these policy wins that we got and expect people to be able to put those into context.
1: I would feel much better about about the politics of this. And obviously, you know, the deals if she really wants the deal to be done, I guess that kind of rubbing it in Trump's face has to wait until it's. The, the deal's consummated, right? Or else, or else, it all kind of falls apart. If If I had the sense that that's how Democrats were going to message it, and they were going to message it aggressively, I'd feel better about things. Because in the in the in the current climate, where it's just you know we need to prove that these frontline members can quote unquote walk and chew gum at the same time, is you have this terrible forest for the trees policy which is like to save these districts we need to show that they can get things done in Washington but if you if you if you draw th- th- like that like the fallacy is pretty obvious there right o- okay so why don't they just pass everything that Donald Trump wants it'll prove that they can get things done Of course, that means Donald Trump will become more popular and suddenly their ability to hold on to their districts, Democrats' ability to hold the House, Democrats' ability to beat Trump in the election starts deteriorating. Right. So like at some level comes
2: down to how much of an emergency do you think we're in. Right. And the frustration is that Pelosi and some of these other Democrats are not treating this like it's a sufficient emergency. Right. It's an, an it is, to my mind, an emergency that overrides all other policy goals. Right. We have a 11 months to decide whether we're going to continue to be a liberal democracy or not. And, you know, whether or not right. you got a better deal on prescription drug prices, prescription drug prices are really important, but they're actually not as important as that.
1: Yeah. So I I, th- I actually think about this in almost the exact same way, is that if Democrats are going to like, cut, if they're going to, quote unquote, cut deals with Trump, um, they really ought to be a one shot deals like you, you're not going to have a second second chance to, to get this done, that really advance the ball on some progressive goal. Um, and uh, they should also be issues that sort of code as uh, Democratic Party issues. So, like, I, I traced out a hypothetical that if Trump were willing to pair a big minimum wage hike, $15 minimum wage, whatever, in order to get this trade deal done, like, uh, I'd probably get there. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that that ends, you know, y- you... You get so much out of it that it might be worth it, and it's clear that Trump gave some to get some, and so it's not just a, a straight-up victory for him. But if you don't have that kind of um, you know situation at hand, um, if the benefits are marginal, or if you think that a future Democratic president can do as well or better, um, then you just don't do it, right? Like it, this is not cutting the same trade deal with Mitt Romney. It would be totally unremarkable if Democrats were making this deal with Mitt Romney. Um, but in, in a world with democracy under threat, and the US president is the single biggest part of that threat. Then handing him easily spun victories that validate key parts of his message seems like such an obvious mistake that I'm I'm kind of stunned.
2: And I want to go back to this idea of despair that I was talking about earlier because, you know, I don't it's it's obviously not just me. Right. I mean, I wrote this thing because I had this sort of ambient sense that it was happening. Um, the reaction to it was, you know, I got a ton of feedback from other people who are feeling the same thing. Recently, I started reaching out to therapists to talk to them about what their patients are saying about trump. um i I lasted this in the run-up to the election. I started talking to therapists about patients who had a lot of anxiety that Trump would win the election. And it's kind of heartbreaking because one way that they helped them manage that anxiety was to help them see how unlikely that possibility was, which is obviously not possible anymore. right. <laughs> right? So I've been talking to therapists you know, in in blue parts of the country, but who say that Trump comes up in almost, for some of them, Trump comes up in almost every session, right? And I was just talking to somebody this morning who was telling me that um, she feels like people have moved from this state of hypervigilance to a state of despair. And that despair is, I mean, it's dangerous for them, but it's dangerous for All of us, we cannot go into an election with our people feeling that. Um, By the way, she was saying that some of the people that she treats that are having the hardest time with what's happening are are Holocaust survivors. And so I think that our people, the people who are going to, you know, hopefully have a chance to save democracy – um, in 11 months, they need to feel like they have a champion. They need to feel like there's somebody who recognizes the scale of the emergency, who recognizes how terrified they are, and who can stand up for them. And in as much as we have everybody focused on these little tiny demographic slivers of these frontline districts, I don't think we have that. And I think it's, it's really, really dangerous.
1: Before... Uh wrapping it up, I did want to talk to you a little bit about the trial, what you anticipate it looking like, stipulating that uh, sitting here, we don't think that there's anywhere close to 20 Republican votes to remove him. Um, what do you think it looks like? Are you concerned about these murmurings among moderate Democrats that they might prefer censure rather than impeachment. Of
2: course I'm concerned. I'm terrified. <laughs> and I, I mean it's 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 so self-defeating. It makes me it makes my head want to explode. I mean I just I cannot fathom why they think that kind of getting to this point and then le- essentially letting Donald Trump off the hook would be um you know a, a good idea not just for a good idea for the country but ultimately a good idea for them. Uh,
1: but, so, but but the other thing ahead.
2: that concerns me about the Senate trial um Right. I mean, with Bill Clinton's Senate trial, I think there was three witnesses called. Mm -hmm. I would be surprised if there's even that many. I mean, from what I've read, there's, you know, there's Trump who wants to turn it into a big circus and try to call Hunter Biden and try to call all these other people. In some sense, I feel like that would be the better situation for Democrats. You know, fine, you call Hunter Biden, but we're also calling Rudolph Giuliani um, and we're also calling, you know, Lev Parnas and all these other figures A a trial in which kind of nobody is called and it's just, you know, kind of a bunch of Senate floor speeches seems really um, anticlimactic.
1: All right. Let's leave it there. Uh, Michelle Goldberg, thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: That's it for this week. By next week's episode, the impeachment of Donald Trump should be complete and we will be awaiting the trial of Donald Trump in the United States Senate. That trial probably won't begin until January, uh, but that doesn't mean everything will be on hold until then. There's another transcript out there that Democrats want to see, this one between Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky and Vice President Mike Pence. So the chase is on for that. We'll also likely learn whether and when the Supreme Court will hear arguments over President Trump's challenges to all these subpoenas of his financial records. Um, And one silver lining of a narrow impeachment investigation is that there are just a lot of dangling threads and a lot of dots unconnected and any number of shoes that could drop at any point. Uh, So who knows? We might even learn who tried to bribe Rick Gates to obstruct the Trump-Russia investigation. This show is produced by Crooked Media. It is written and hosted by me, Brian Boitler. Stephen Hoffman is our producer and editor. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts.